This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is Jeffrey Immelt, former CEO of General Electric and current venture partner at New Enterprise Associates. Don't give up on the vision of the kind of person you want to be and the kind of impact you want to have on society, but start where you can, right? Not where you can't. Jeff will be speaking at the University of Montana on September 27th as part of the Bacchus Center's Stockman Bank Speaker Series. He was kind enough to join me for a conversation in advance of his visit. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, great, Justin. Look forward to the conversation. I look forward to visiting campus. Absolutely. We are excited for your visit. Um, let's start where we do with all our guests. Tell us where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Yeah, so I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. My father actually also worked at GE. He was uh, kind of in the manufacturing arena and GE aviation in Cincinnati. And my uh, mother was a school teacher. So good uh, middle class, Midwest uh, upbringing. Yeah. And you went into the family business, as it were. Yeah. It's, it's uh, not exactly that easy, but yeah, no, it was a uh, interesting coincidence for sure. Absolutely. Let's talk about shocks and crisis a little bit. I mean, we're kind of hopefully, knock on wood, coming out of the shock of COVID, although that's unclear and there's all sorts of reverberations. You handled some of the biggest shocks our world has experienced in your time at GE. And looking back on that, what what um, what kind of lessons did you learn during that time that you think um, could apply to what we're we're kind of coming through with COVID right now? Yeah, you know, Justin. So all crisis today is kind of crisis leadership, and so I started my my life as a CEO right after nine eleven. And then lived through the financial crisis, uh, Fukushima, uh, now COVID. So these these are kind of like classic terrorist events. So yeah. in the first twenty years of my career, I, I'd never really seen a terrorist event, and in the last fifteen years of my career, it seemed like I was in a terrorist event every day. Right. So when I and, and each one is different, but I, I'd say the commonality is that in a crisis, a good leader has to absorb fear, right? And in other words, you need to be a shock absorber for what's going on in the world and not amplify it to the people that work with you, but rather try to put it in context, try to come up with a plan, you know, things like that. Uh, You've got to simplify, you know, in other words, you've, you've got to do some triage, no matter where you are, You've got to you've got to make things simple for people and and uh, and find ways that uh, you know people can kind of work together in a in that kind of setting. You have to hold two truths at the same time. One is that no matter how bad things are, they can always get worse. You know, I remember like during the financial crisis, my CFO would walk in and say, "You know, Jeff, things can't get worse than they are today." And I'd say, "Well, you know, Keith, <laughs> they probably are going to get worse, right?" But also, the second truth is that. There's a future. You have to continue to fight for the future. And I find that good leaders hold true, you know, two truths at the same time. And the last thing is, is, you know, in a, in a real crisis, you've got to you've got to surround yourself with people you trust. And, you know, I think we all we throw around this word 
trust almost too cavalierly, but you know, you really can't see who you really trust until really terrible things happen, unfortunately. And I'd say that's the last one. The other thing I would say, Justin, is I teach a class at Stanford Business School. And so I, I have about 80 students in my class. So I've done five years. So let's say 430-year-olds that I, that I work with in the classroom. And they're very much what I would say children of crisis. You know, they, they've grown up in the financial crisis and COVID and things like that. So I think as, as people in society or in education or wherever, I think we just have to realize that, that the young people today, they're going to look at the world a little bit differently because they've really seen two or three terrorist events and that's no fun. Yeah, let's let's press on that a little bit. Yeah. This course you're teaching is on systems thinking, is that right? Yeah. And first let's like what is systems thinking? How did you get interested in it such that you thought it was something you wanted to teach? Yeah, so I, I thought uh, you know, Justin, that I'd like to teach, you know, kind of in my in the next phase of my life and career as one way to give back. I really wanted to teach a class about disruption, both okay. economic and technical, because I, I really feel like that's the world that people are going to live in. We, we picked the name Systems Leadership. I've got a co-teacher that I, I had known for a long time. And so basically, we have 12 classes, and we bring in a CEO to each class. Six are startups, and six are legacy CEOs. And, and basically what we talk about is driving through change, driving through transitions, driving through technical disruptions and things like that. And when I talk about systems thinking, what I really ask each CEO or ask each student to do is look at the world horizontally, like what interconnections are important, and vertically, like who makes money, who gets profit, uh, things like that. I'd say to just give you a more tangible example, if you think about clean energy, clean tech, think about electric vehicles, right? If you look horizontally, it's not just about you. You have to think about the government, government policy. You have to think about, is there going to be enough battery material to make batteries? Who's going to build the infrastructure for recharging and all those things? And then when you think about your, your company vertically, you think about, gosh, how, do I backward integrate? Who are my partners? Who are my competitors? And so we ask the students to look at every problem or every opportunity in two dimensions. And that's why we call it systems thinking. And let's go back to what you said a moment ago about the students in the class. I mean, yes, this, this sort of age cohort that you're primarily working with, they lived through a different world getting to their 30s than, than, than you did. And you mentioned, you know, the, the 20 years of your career at GE prior to 9-11 and becoming CEO were not necessarily stable, but, but a more stable world in general than, than what you experienced during your years as CEO and what we're experiencing now. Can you recall the worldview of the kind of average 30-year-old when you were in those stable years versus what you're seeing now for for the the disposition of students in your class? So I graduated from business school, let's say, in 1982 and joined GE. And, you know, we we trusted the man, you know, in other words. But you had basically an ecosystem that was built on trust because, you know, you, you didn't see bad things happening. Right. You, you basically thought that 
companies could provide, they could help you arc your career, uh, things like that. Right? There was a social uh, contract of a sort. There was a little bit of a social contract that was starting to end, but I would say there's a whole lot of trust in the system. I'd say if you're 30 years, you know, if you're getting out of school today, the young people, they, they don't trust the system. I think that's why so many people want to start their own companies. You, mm-hmm. you know, it's fun and it's maybe it's lucrative, but the students I have that want to start their own company, they're doing it really because they uh, don't trust us, you know, they don't trust the people like me to kind of have their best interests at heart and things like that. So I, I'd say that's that's the overarching theme. I, and I think this is partially due to kind of the communications and government and things like that. You know, basically most people that graduated when I did wanted to kind of see the world. You know, we wanted to leave global careers. We wanted to live all over the world, things right. like that. I don't see that in my students today. They're very kind of place restrictive. They want to live in San Francisco or New York City, maybe Missoula, but they certainly don't want to live in Hong Kong or Mumbai or things like that. So I I see that as being a a real difference in terms of where we are. And maybe the last one I'd say is, you know, from working with my students, I I kind of, I'm much more sensitized to mental health. You know, it just was something we didn't talk about 30 or 40 years ago, but I've become much more sensitized to listening to when my students have anxiousness, but also when they're in real pain, right? And I think people like you that are in this business have had to be much more attuned to that. It's it's complicated, but I think a lot of it has to do with just look at the, the amount of volatility uh, 22 year old has seen is so much greater today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And we need to recognize that. Absolutely. That notion that things are sort of generally getting better. It's, it's totally been disrupted in, in the view of students. They just don't have that kind of foundation in many ways. And COVID, I think, particularly on academic campuses, has just been a bear to manage. And so I don't think it it's I think it's true at Ohio State and Montana and every school around the country has had to kind of make it up as they go. Yeah. And one of the things we're really enjoying here is just the the vibrance that um, students are bringing to campus as we've sort of not quite resumed entirely normal operations, whatever that actually means. But um, the energy of getting students in the same room and getting the masks off, you know, I think there was a, a hunger for that. And maybe a silver lining is that people will understand they got to get themselves out of screens and uh, more uh, yeah. with other people. And we're, we're, maybe that'll do some good for the mental health crisis we're experiencing. I think what we've learned in COVID is that there's lots of ways to deliver education mm-hmm. and doing it online clearly is going to be part of the future, but nothing replaces the human contact of being in class. Nothing. Another question about your students. And that's something, you know, we hear all sorts of hot takes in the media and, uh, you know, you look at the labor market statistics, the statistics across our economy, they're, they're kind of baffling. And the hot take is that people just don't want to work, right? That they're, they're kind of tapping out of the, uh, the workforce. And, you know, I, I don't think any of those are particularly uh, helpful or true, but th- there does seem to be a change in the relationship that um, young people want to have to work and career Talk about that. What do, what do you see happening post-COVID in, in the, the relationship we have to work? It's a great question because I, I think 
you know, kind of labor shortage is one of the big themes of the world today, certainly in this country. You know, one of the things I always look at, I I don't look at the unemployment rate because I think it's kind of a bogus number. I look at how many people are working, Mm -hmm. right? And so what you just said, participation rate remains very low, which means people are staying home. And I think there's a complexity to that, which is, you know, there's people that have left the workplace that we need to help get back because kids were home and and all that stuff. Yeah. I I think part of it is the fact that maybe some of the jobs just became unappealing. And so people don't want to go and do work that they feel like doesn't value their, their skill set and their, their, their mind and things like that. And then I, I think Justin, there's a real, we just have a real misallocation of where people are going to work. Hmm. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and there's 6,000 open healthcare jobs in Cincinnati, right? So when you think about a school, a good school like University of Montana, you know, maybe a third of your population of your students should be getting prepared to go to work in healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's where the need is, that's where the growth is. But I don't think the government or the education has caught up with what where people are really going to go to work and getting people excited to kind of take those jobs. There's, a, there's just a real mismatch. And I don't think it has to do with capability. I just think it has to do with... Uh, with focus, right? We, we need to adjust the, the pool by 15 degrees to get them, to get your great students focused on doing the things that we really need them to do for the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah. And, and talk a little bit more about that. I mean, that the notion of getting into healthcare, you know, the, the, the range of jobs and types of jobs and, and work environments that, that were, that I think the, the future of healthcare will include it's far more diverse than, than the oh current gosh. conception. I mean, the, the, we don't necessarily need to produce more physicians. No. Although in some areas there are shortages. But yeah, yeah, the range of jobs, I think we sort of have a, a bit of an imagination problem when it comes to healthcare. You know, there's the whole kind of physician and elder care and all that. But then there's fitness and rehab yeah. and surgery centers and administration and software devices that people can wear in the home. You know, there's just a bow wave of growth in healthcare and a shortage of labor. And and I just think those are the kinds of things that people have to kind of go and see. And then there's all kinds of new innovations for the factory floor and, and uh, you know, other arenas that people can, I think, get excited about and, and uh, go to work in. And they can do it in small companies and big companies and everywhere in between. But I, I think we have to kind of reintroduce college students to here. Here, here's wh- where you can have a fulfilling uh, life and interesting career, and you know, come and join us, right? And and that's uh, employers have to do that, professors have to do that because we're going to need more people. There's there's just we don't have enough workers in the workforce today to do all the things we need to do. We'll be back to our conversation with Jeff Immelt after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education 
are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Ryan Tutel of ESPN Radio in Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with former General Electric CEO Jeff Immelt. Yeah, and a place like Stanford is quite a bit different than the University of Montana, but there are similarities in that we're one of the, the primary forces in preparing students and people for that world. Uh, you know, the healthcare market in particular uh, comes to mind. But, but talk about that at, at, at Stanford. What are you seeing with some, some innovations at the university level that might you know, be, be helping to fill some of those needs and gaps in the economy that you're seeing? There's multiple worlds. You know, I would say there is there's a technical world that is, you know, if you think about the energy transition from, you know, hydrocarbons to electrification and renewables, that is going to be kind of a combination of technology and public policy and new careers. And, and that, you know, that's going to, happen at Stanford, that also has to happen at University of Montana, Yeah, right? And then I think, you know, one of the things about MBAs is they're just, they're so, you know, financial industry driven today, you know, private equity, uh, investment banking, yeah. things like that. And, you know, we've got plenty of those folks. You don't need sure. Montana. We don't need you producing more. We need, we need more engineers and salespeople and manufacturing leaders and healthcare executives and things like that. So it's almost a, a tale of two education. And then it's a, and then the one thing that Stanford does do, and one of the reasons why I wanted to move to the West coast is I wanted to kind of be part of the new venture ecosystem, the, the entrepreneurial world. And that is something that, that, Universities do in general, but I would say this ecosystem out here is probably the best in the world at producing entrepreneurs. Absolutely. And let's talk about that a little bit. You, you know, you're a venture partner at New Enterprise Associates. You're in the room evaluating a lot of these new uh, startup ventures. What is your role in the organization and, and what sort of role do you play in, in the evaluation of some of these, uh, these ventures? The reason why I joined New Enterprise Associates, NEA, is because it's a big firm. It's a big fund. It does both healthcare and technology. I wanted to be part of both worlds. And so it gives me a really large playground uh, to play in. And, and I have two roles. You know, one is uh, as an investor. So I help evaluate, you know, kind of all the investments that the firm is making. And a couple of them I'll, each year I'll sponsor myself. But the other one is, is I, I really help because of my experience and things like that. I bring kind of an operational skill set that younger venture partners just don't have. Yeah. So I can be helpful when a, when a company needs to build a new facility or wants to break into a big customer or is having difficulties hiring a CFO. Th those are things that I know how to do that typically young entrepreneurs don't necessarily know how to do. And so I, I play kind of a, a pretty big operating role in, in, in those activities as well. I wanted to kind of go back and start small again in my second life. And, and this has been great fun. To yeah. Do. And, you know, having kind of led through a wide variety of crises and kind of lived the experience of, of who you can trust and when you can trust them and under what conditions – 
are there things you can see in emerging leaders that that would sort of give you the sense that they're ready to handle crises when they come? The sad part is, is that you don't know it until you see it. You know, it's one of the things about crisis management, which is somebody can look like the smartest, the most emotionally intelligent person in the world. And when the shit hits the fan, there's just a different DNA that people have, right? And you don't know it until you see it. So I, I try to help people like, you know, clearly through COVID and even now, you know, with a lot of these tech uh, companies getting crushed in the in the equity markets and things like that, it's, it's kind of digging in with them and helping them to be thoughtful and calm when things really aren't going the way they want them to go. And, and believe me today, there's lots of things that aren't going well that these people have to adjust to, but you just don't know it until you see it. And, and so I'm very, let's say, diligent and observant, particularly in times like this. You know, then there's lessons I can teach them that you can't talk about in public much, but are really true, which is like everybody thinks that a board of directors is always the mature adults. That's never true. (laughs) So, So teaching them that like, look, there's a third of your board that cares nothing about you. There's a third of your board that doesn't have courage. And then there's a third that's going to be with you in a street fight. You better know which third those are, right? There's a difference between an investor and an operator. Investors will say, when things get bad, they'll say, hey, take all the actions you need to take right now and don't take any risk. <laughs> Operators have a different perspective. They understand that actually in a crisis, that's when you can do the most differentiation. So I give probably slightly different advice than even some of my partners would give to young leaders in the midst of crisis. And really through COVID and now you've got inflation, this has been three choppy years for most of these small companies. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you've talked about some of these these changes. You mentioned energy just a moment ago. I mean, this this it seems like this infrastructure bill that that's recently passed has some provisions to kind of help us make this transformation. But, you know, here in Missoula, like we're seeing, I'm seeing electric car after electric car on the road, but I'm not necessarily seeing the the infrastructure and systems to uh, yeah. to keep up with that. So we've got consumers making a bunch of different choices and a sort of structural economy that might not be keeping up with those consumer preferences. How do you kind of look at some of those um, shifts? I thought by and large, the Inflation Reduction Act had lots of um, things on the, the clean energy part. I thought it was pretty well done, pretty mm-hmm. sensible, didn't try to pick winners and losers, tried to put, you know, put the punch, um, you know, where it matters most and things like that. So let, let me let me say that at the outset. Yeah, I, I would say as it pertains to just the energy transition more broadly and in the U.S., not just in the U.S., but around the world, I, I think the system is kind of failing right now and that we don't we don't really treat it as a transition, which means, look, you're going to need infrastructure, what you just talked about. We're going to need hydrocarbons for 20 years, maybe more, right, to get through the transition. We're going to need the public utilities and the local grid uh, companies and, uh, and the consumers to be aligned, right? 
So there's a bunch of like four or five things that have to do to get yourself positioned for the kind of sustainability we need to actually reduce pollution, get on the path to uh, avert climate change disasters and things like that. I, I, I spent half the year in California. Look, the California energy policy is terrible. Mm. It's the worst. Poor people get crushed because it's too costly. My house was without power for six hours on Saturday. It was a hot last week and the state has a five gigawatt deficit of electricity, oh. right? So, yep. you know, so this is in theory the greenest state in the country. But if you said to somebody in Ohio, um, you've got to have California's energy policy, they would say NFW. Yeah, yeah. get out of here. You're right. So I, I just think we need a, a, a much more interrelated and broader perspective. And you can't do it in one presidential term or one speech or things like that. And we're just not making enough progress. Yeah. Along those lines, Jeff, you know, what do you what do you kind of tell young people that want to make a difference? I mean, if they look to Washington for inspiration, they're, they're not going to find many examples of working together and in good faith, whatever your disposition is politically. But, but how do we make people more willing to work with uh, folks they don't necessarily agree with or have the same experience? I, I kind of urge them to start to start small and start at home, right? In, in other words, I, I say, look, we're in a we're in just one of these periods of time where institutional leadership is not strong, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's not a lot of successes to point to. But that doesn't mean you can't do it at University of Montana or in Missoula or at GE or at your company or at your school or your workplace. And, you know, kind of when the conversation gets there uh, with our students, I, I'm always like, don't give up on the vision of the kind of person you want to be and the kind of impact you want to have on society, but start where you can, right? Not where you can't. I just think national politics is just a really hard place to start right now, but locally and in towns and in schools and things like that. Yeah. A lot, a lot you can do. I'm still today. I'm very uh, active in my high school. So mm -hmm. my high school is again in Ohio it's a kind of a middle class, lower middle class, and I can have an impact on that community, right? I, I care about it. I love the people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So start there, right? If you said to me, you have to fix America's education system, I'd say, nope, can't do that. I don't have, don't have the skill set. I can't do that. But I can start small and make a difference. And I think that's what people have to do. They start small. Yeah, I, I like that advice. And I think it's advice that our listeners will appreciate as well. Jeff, this has been fantastic. Uh, a lot of themes we, we touched on here are prominent themes in your book, The Hot Seat, and will be themes of your talk next week. So great to spend some time with you. We're excited for your visit. Yeah, I think you'll find a smart and engaging audience and listeners. Jeff's talk with Max Bacchus is at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, September 27th. For tickets, visit umt.edu slash law. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, Justin, it was great to meet you, and I look forward to meeting you in person in a couple weeks.
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.